0: Hey folks, I'm John Botsett, and welcome to the Why Podcast. This is where I get to sit down with some incredible people and talk about their careers, passions, and how they've navigated struggles in their lives. Today, I got to sit down with music educator Dr. Ashley Glenn. Ashley has spent his life teaching and mentoring. From his time in the bandroom to his years spent as an alumni leader of Phi Mu Alpha, Ashley has been an inspiration to those around him. And one of my personal mentors. You will hear Ashley speak about his time in the classroom, the fraternity, and also a hospital bed because in March of 2013, Ashley lost his right leg. But despite that physical handicap and trauma, he has persevered and gone on to accomplish so many incredible things. Over the decade I've known him, he has continued to inspire me, and I have no doubt that he will walk away from this conversation changed for the better. So sit back, relax, and enjoy a great conversation with my friend, Dr. Ashley Glenn. I to talk with you as long as I've had this idea for this kind of podcast. Um, and you and I got to know each other back, oh God, almost ten years ago, I think, uh, through Fine You Alpha and. and then we worked together and then you made the decision to move away from me in particular. And that crushed my soul (laughs) that I don't have. And, um, and you've always just the time that I've gotten to spend with you has always been so enriching and um, watching you uh, teach and invest in people and invest in me has been one of the most like fulfilling things that I've seen. Um, And so I, I, I would, my goal basically with this conversation is to just try and get like a little snapshot of that um, and just kind of take a a little bit of a deeper look into uh, who you are as a person and maybe share some of the things that I've experienced with you and maybe learn, I hope, I hope definitely learn some things about you. Um, So one of the biggest things I think when anybody says that they're an educator, like you are, is uh, at least to me, the first thing that comes to mind is what led them to that i think for some people um they got into one profession maybe they wanted to be a performer and then uh, education was just a fallback but i think uh the majority of people had uh this driving factor in their life whether it be a person or an experience um that wanted to that led them to the point where they're at with um wanting to become a teacher so was that was that a specific person that you can remember? Was that a set of experiences or what led to you getting into education?
1: Wow, it's been, I'd say it's been a long, since I've thought, long time since I've thought about this, but considering I talked about it at the beginning of each semester in Instrumental Methods. Uh, <laughs> no, it, it's, I wanted to get an education and specifically music education just because of the richness of the relationships that I found in it and the fact that it was the relationships that drove what I learned more than necessarily just the way that it was taught. I I, Growing up where I did in Saudi-Daisy, Tennessee, even though it was just a little town on the north end of Hamilton County, we are always lucky to have some really good music teachers there. And it was fun. It was something to do. It was a way to get out of class, not have to do as much social studies or math in elementary school. But when I got to middle school, Things were a little bit different. I had a teacher in middle school who uh, really didn't care if we succeeded or not. Uh, My middle school band director was much more focused on making sure that the high school jazz band was doing really well. And he would even use us. We would take time out of band class to staple drill charts together for the high school band. And it just kind of felt like we were just something he had to do to have this other job too and well at the beginning of my eighth grade year i had started to get serious I'd actually kept my tuba over the summer between seventh and eighth grade we started in seventh grade at the time and i had practiced and I had come in and was doing really well and I was talking with him and he said you know if you really want to be serious about this then you may want to look into transferring there's you probably want to go to another school across town. And at the time um, Hickson high school under Frank Hale was just one of the powerhouse programs in the state. And he said, I should probably um, have my parents see if they can transfer me into that school instead. If I really wanted to be serious. A few weeks later, he ended up taking a leave of absence. Uh, My band director did. Uh, And one of the most formative people in my mind, in my life, uh, Rick Chambers came in as a long-term sub. And uh he really pushed us and pushed us hard and encouraged us to do well. And he did these weird things, like asking us how we were doing, asking how our classes were going. And he wasn't just like, I want to, I don't want to embarrass ourselves on the spring concert. It was, I want you you to thrive as a human being by being part of this. Well, our uh, the band director came back from leave and we had a good solid rest of the year out. Um, but over the summer, he got married and moved to Texas. And so we went into band camp that fall, not knowing who the band director would be. And Rick Chambers came back as a long-term sub. His son was in the marching band. And he wanted, to, he wanted to make sure that we all had a positive experience while they tried to find a band director. And lo and behold, he became our band director. And over the course of four years, we went from having about 60 kids on the field to my senior year, I was wearing uniform number 150. Wow. Uh, and it wasn't just because of the quality teaching. And I can talk a lot about the performance sophomore year. Well, they went from getting a division three a contest when I was in middle school to my sophomore year, we took Carmina Burana to festival and got straight ones everywhere we went. Wow! And so the, the teaching was solid. The pedagogy was solid, but band wasn't just what you had seventh period. It was a family Mm -hmm. and that is what really helped make it grow because you showed up knowing that you were going to get a quality experience with people who truly cared about you. And that is what really started me down that road of thinking, I want other people to have this experience. No kid should be told if you want to have a good experience, transfer to another school. And then I ended up in choir at Saudi high school with Nancy Wade, who is Dave Brubeck's goddaughter. Oh my gosh. And yes. <laughs> she would get faxes in of music from him for us to sight read. And then she'd send him notes back about what worked or didn't work with choirs. Wow. So I had double dose because of the way I'd work, work in band and choir one right after the other. And it was incredible. And so here I am, this confused high school student who is just having experience after experience after experience of being pushed beyond what I think I can do by two phenomenal educators in the arts. And the rest of my teachers were great too. I I really can't complain about what I had in, in high school, but band and choir were the places that I was emotionally connected to what I was doing. There was an investment in not only me as a part of the performing group, but me as a human being. And so the, The the Lego pieces started falling together that I wanted other people to have that experience too, that no one should go through feeling like they're just a number in a drill book or they're a chair in the trumpet section. They should feel valued as a human being while they're performing in the arts.
0: What I'm kind of curious about too is when, especially when you first first started teaching, did you after having all of those incredible experiences um, and you were trying to communicate what you had learned to your students at that point, did you ever feel like there was a backup of um, the amount of experience and information you wanted them to get, like you had received to what was actually being received by them? Like, did you feel like you weren't able to clearly communicate everything that you wanted to with them just because you, you lacked like the experience and communication skills at that point?
1: Oh, good Lord. Um, A little bit of background. I said I was from Saudi Daisy, a little small rural town, but became a monster program. I did my student teaching at Cleveland High School in Cleveland, Tennessee, which was a highly established program. And in both of those programs, students were invested in what was going on. And the places that I did my practicum work while I was at the University of Tennessee Knoxville, the students were invested in what was going on. So I walk into this little rural program east of Knoxville in Jefferson City, Tennessee, and no one's emotionally invested in what's going on. Yeah, It's uh, the band director left during in-service to work on his doctorate. And they didn't hire anyone, me, until two and a half weeks into the school year. So, so many of the kids to quit because just poor planning. They I, The guy waited until the last minute and then took off. And these were kids who weren't required to sit in sections in their band classes. Wow. It was a chaotic nightmare of let's try all these things just to see what sticks. And they could play well. They'd been taught well, but... It was they were used to being yelled at and barked at. So getting them to a point where they could trust me as a teacher, and where the kids who came right after them could trust me as a teacher because you know, communities have memory. It's it's really quick to destroy a program, but it takes a long time to fix it. Yeah. And it took several years to build up that trust and that idea that, you know, they knew that I was they knew I knew what I was talking about. They knew that I had the book smarts, but it took a while for them to understand that I cared about him too. Joel Denton, um, former band director of Ultawa high school, the way that he puts it is just so genius. The kids don't care how much, you know, until they know how much you care. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, when they finally realized that I wasn't a flight risk Oh, the, the guy who took off for um, for um, to finish his doctorate told them, oh, this guy's just a long-term sub. I'll be back the next fall. Oh, no. So I knew I was interim going in, but they were treating me like I was basically a substitute teacher who just happened to know the subject. So when I showed back up the following fall as their full-time director, and, you know, he, here's a tiny little school. Uh, my first week there, the music one of the music stores shows up and repossesses most of my stuff. Wow. Uh, so I had almost no school-owned instruments, just a couple snare drums, a bass drum, and a bell kit. And we started from the bottom of the basement. And when, when I left, we were averaging about 120 in the middle school program. And we had... We were fully kitted out to provide students who were not economically able to participate in the program with instruments that they could use and take home and practice with. We had a full set of percussion equipment so that the kids could learn what their peers were learning at other schools of similar size. And we had people coming in to work with students, pull students out, do sectionals with the kids. And we developed a relationship with Carson Newman where all of their uh, music ed students were coming through my instrumental music ed students were coming through my band room for one of their practicum experiences before they student taught. Wow. So that happened again, because we developed a family mindset. I showed up to do my time until a high school came along and I was going to build the next great Cleveland high school or Ultawa or Saudi or Dobbins Bennett, what have you, and be the next, school band director. But I fell in love and stayed 14 years. And it was 14 hard, but wonderful years. And I've got wonderful friendships that came out of that. And there's a big piece of my heart that's still sitting in that band room at um, 361 West Broadway in Jefferson City. And
0: I think more than any other subject, it seems like the relationship between students and teacher and and families and teacher and, and music is like a marriage. And uh, like you said, like when you walked into that relationship with them, they had, uh, they had been, it had been like an abusive relationship where they were mistrustful. They, uh, they didn't believe you. Um, they didn't know you and you had to work at it and communicate and teach them and show them who you were and, and how you were going to, Uh, how that they, that they could trust their kids with you and that the kids could trust you or trust you with their experiences and with their time. And I mean, I I think you have some examples of that happening in like in history classes and um, math classes and, and teachers inspiring really impassionate students, but it, it seems more often than not that because of that emotional, um, connection with music that it ends up happening in band classes and orchestra and choir classes more than any other uh, subject
1: in school. Yeah. There's something about the performing arts that allows students to experience things on a whole different level than many other things. So I don't want to take away from history or math or football or basketball, or any other activities They They are all important. I really ascribe to the Greek mindset of things where you want to develop the whole person. Mm-hmm. I love the fact that I had loads of football players in my band. I was really proud of my kids who were on the cheerleading squad and in band, and my kids who were who are all a academic honor roll students, because they were building the whole self. But there's something about the arts that allows you to experience things at a whole new level. And I love that we got all superiors and excellence. We never got anything lower than a two any time that I took my kids to festival. But more important than that, more important than any of those ratings was, did my kids have a memorable experience that made them feel something? what did they get out of the music? Uh, the last piece that I took to festival with my seventh and eighth grade kids was High Water Mark the Third Day. It was a, um, it was a tone poem on um, the third day of the Battle of Gettysburg. And I had them write stories as if they were in one of the sides at the Battle of Gettysburg. Oh, wow. And I read to them the story that the composer had put into the front of it about how there were friends on each that were generals on each side that were writing letters back and forth uh, through their aides de camp, talk asking how their families were, asking how things were going on their farms, and the fact that this was an awful real situation where logical differences, but they still loved each other intensely, and. That affects you. Um, when you learn to express your emotions in a way that you otherwise wouldn't, because there are some kids who will never tell you how they feel. But the moment they pick up a flute or a clarinet, the moment they pick up a paintbrush, the moment they open up uh, uh, Mar-Lawrence and Magnum Mysterium, and you see their face change and all of a sudden, these things that they can't talk about, these things that they are feeling that they don't know how to communicate, someone else has given them the words. Someone else has said, It's okay. You're in a group. You can be vulnerable right now. And just that experience of letting that wash over you, of being part of something bigger than you, mm-hmm. and yet you being integral in it is just wow. There's nothing else like it. And, you know, the things that made me feel successful were never the plaques on the wall. Because you don't teach plaques on a wall. I love the fact so many of my kids went on to be in the high school band. But again, that's an artificial metric. It's the kids who I would run into who said, you know, I still pull my clarinet out and play it. I wasn't in a high school band, but I still love to pull out my music from Frozen (laughs) and and just just go through it. Or I had one student who uh, their mother asked me to restore their trumpet for as a high school graduation present because she still played it for fun. You don't have to be a professional musician for music to be a big part of your life. Yeah. You don't have to be a music major for music to be a big part of your life. Just stay active in it. Because once you find that outlet, once you find that place that it comes back and calms you, when playing through, um, picking it up and playing through the B-flat major scale, just washes over you in the memories of being back in that band room with all your friends doing that together. That's a huge payback in and of itself.
0: Absolutely. I uh, When I got into music in middle school, I, I didn't even well, before that, um, my parents love to tell a story how I had a lot of anger issues and uh, would throw things up against the wall and, and would be very violent with my siblings and had just the mouth of a sailor at, at 10 years old. And um, they say, as soon as I started band in middle school, all of that changed. And it's just like I found this sense of inner peace. And, and I think you're right. I, I think I was able to communicate what I was feeling through the music and process things as I was playing them um, in a way that I couldn't do and didn't just have. I didn't have the verbal skills and and um, facilities to do that just on my own. Um, but then over time, I, I I would say I have zero uh, percentage of an angry issue anymore. Um, and it just it it's changed my entire perspective. Um, and that that carried into high school, that carried into college where I was a, a music major. And I remember uh, day one of being at Lee University and uh, meeting somebody like you and I both know him, Nate Hopple, um, uh, he immediately um, befriended me and we had this connection through music and through Simband. And one of the first things that he asked me was to be a part of um, the, the rush week for Phi Alpha. And it was such a foreign concept to me, I had no idea what to expect from a fraternity. Um, I, I was just going to meet people um, and to maybe make some connections and, and kind of not just be the new guy on campus anymore. Um, and I thought I was going to get initiated by the end of the week, and that changed dramatically over the course of that semester. <laughs> um, but it, it blew my mind. And, and that one small interaction that led to um, uh, like a career with this fraternity to a degree where I would go on into leadership and then uh, like regional leadership, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. with you. And that's where you and I's relationship really kicked off was uh, I believe you were there uh, when I was initiated. Mm-hmm. And um, and so what, I, I have nothing but fond memories about that time and, and that um, crazy, unpredictable semester where I was learning about these things and with these people and sharing these experiences with them. And when you when you got into Phi Mu Alpha, what what was that like? What was your introduction to the fraternity? Was that something you had known about beforehand? Was that just were you completely blindsided like I was?
1: Oh my goodness gracious! Um, I'll admit I did not come into the fraternity on the best of pretenses. <laughs> um i i came in looking for a more affordable version of fraternity row um i i had been i had been sheltered so much in my youth that i just wanted you know i wanted that pi kappa fire sigma New experience and then when i found out during band camp that there was a fraternity of lots of band guys like Okay. Then I saw the price tag and I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) That's (laughs) much, much more attainable. Um, But then as I got to know them and found out they were really wonderful guys. And I got to know the guys more than I did the fraternity early on. I had a good FEO who really tried his best and did a lot of really cool things for us. But this was back before we had, um, we had the education system we have now. There's a lot of stuff we didn't know. And it was right after we had just come out of being a professional fraternity and having all of that. But at the time we had a national listserv. And, uh, before it, the time before Facebook, before social media, uh, when you couldn't check everything every three seconds and get immediate updates, um, I started getting to know people on there and starting to find and starting to butt heads. I've always been one who (laughs) tends to butt up against people. It not, not just to be a jerk, uh, not to be a know-it-all, but because iron sharpens iron and we find what we really believe by putting our beliefs to the test, not by sitting there and saying, no, you can't, you can't question me on that. You can't question me on that, but that's neither here nor there. Um, yeah, I started um, getting to know people nationally. My first year teaching at Jefferson Middle School, uh, they'd gone through a series of province governors, uh, the, uh, the alumni in charge of our region, East Tennessee. And it was kind of like, well, who do we have? A phone call asking if I would volunteer and be province governor. Then boom, that's kind of where the rocket hit the, hit the launch pad and took off and um, i discovered that the fraternity was a lot bigger than just four little places in east tennessee
0: yep oh man your perspective changes when you go to a national convention and even even just any kind of national event of any size it's mind-blowing how much
1: that changes well you know i I gotta i've got to give a shout out to the people at my first province governor convocation i barely met these guys. There wasn't much talk on the province governor listserv. I'd only been on a plane like once before. So I fly into Evansville, I get picked up, go to go to this little house out on this back road in the middle of (laughs) middle of rural Indiana. And I walk in and there's this guy sitting at a table hunched over picking through blueberries one by one. And there's a guy over at the piano, just laying down some licks quietly. And there are people sitting on the couch talking and there's a smell of food coming in. And I don't remember who it was. It's, you know, age gets you, it's been 20 years, but someone walked over and shook my hand and said, welcome home, brother. And, you know, I I left that weekend and that was my second home. It, it 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 developed that place so quickly because these alumni leaders. It was just a big old chapter meeting, and it was all these guys who really cared deeply about what was going on. Yeah. So yeah, then first national convention, same thing. Uh, waiting for the Sinfonia Store midnight sale. <laughs> with 400 guys in the hallways of a hotel in Washington DC. And it was, let's go through the whole songbook and then start other stuff we all know without the songbook. And that was just, wow, how can you not be in love with that?
0: Yeah, yeah. I I remember going to my first national convention in New Orleans and we had just left um, uh, the men's choir concert and we were, there's just, Hundred or two hundred of us walking down oh the street. Yeah, I don't know if if you were there. I think you were. Yeah, and we all we all just started singing and just being surrounded by the sound of all of us in unison and sharing this experience. I I don't think there was anything else in New Orleans like it. And uh, oh my gosh, that. Just that communal experience, when all all you know up to that point is maybe twenty or thirty guys singing in a room together, and then suddenly, when you're uh, in in th- in the thick of it, you're you're together with hundreds of your brothers, um, and just realizing the scale to which the fraternity is represented, um, I, I think it's something that it's really hard to grasp when you're just in college and in your little bubble. And when you're trying to pitch the idea of Find Me Alpha to somebody, it's so hard to to whittle that down and to dilute that experience. Um, but when you when you fully realize the scale of a national fraternity of any kind, of any of them, um, it completely changes the experience. Um, I, if you if you had to sum up or try to sell Find Me Alpha, for lack of a better word, to someone who who was interested or didn't know anything about it in, in like maybe the most ideal sense of Find Me Alpha. How, how would you put that? How would you, uh, how would you put your experiences down into something tangible that someone else could maybe comprehend?
1: I'd have to be straightforward. There are no words. And I'm not saying that because I don't have a script in front of me telling you how to sell this, telling me how to sell this to you on an elevator in 30 seconds. But Symphonia encompasses so much the experience of what makes humanity good. It takes the first common language across the planet of music, no matter what the first people spoke, no matter what all the people spoke coming after the music has always been that core of who we are as humans it's been the constant that runs through all the cultures. Symphonia is about experiencing it on a whole new level and realizing that it's not just about experiencing it, but someone has to take care of it too. And that's what Symphonia is. It's people who are experiencing music at the most raw and vulnerable and incredible level. Notice I didn't say professional, or the highest quality, but it's most base and human level. And realizing that that's something that needs to be taken care of for the, for the generations to follow. And Sinfonia is about having a great time in college and building a lot of memories, but it's about doing it among people who find music to be the language that unites us all and brings us together. Because you know, it it, not everyone will experience our ritual. Not everyone will experience even one of our public ceremonies. But every person on this earth knows what it's like to listen to a song and feel all of a sudden connected to what that song is saying, and feel connected to the other people who are having that exact same experience at that exact same time. And that is the ultimate outcome of what we do as Symphonians. We take care of each other. We watch out for each other and we socialize because humans are social animals and we need it. But the outcome of that is the best and truest of the music that we can advance.
0: I don't, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think I could put it any better than that. I, it's an experience that I think changes you to the core. And, and maybe that's an idealistic point of view. Maybe that's not as practical today, but, um, I, I I think when you, when you join something like that and a group like that, and then 10 years later, you're walking down the street and you see someone in a Jersey and you know immediately, no matter who they are, that you're connected and you're their brother. Um, I think it, it puts in perspective that, that there is such a communal experience with us as humans. And that if we just learn to find the common ground with each other, that uh, you can connect with anyone all across the world. And and just share the simplest of experiences with them, but still, still see them as as a brother, as a sister, as a human being. Um, and I I would say that I am definitely an idealism, or I am an idealist um, in in life in general to a degree. But I I think that my experience with Phi Me Alpha Two has just um, has just sharpened that idea of we're all one interconnected community and um that music is is central to that for so many reasons like you said it's that universal language that binds us together that we all can share in an experience of of feeling an emotional connection to a song um whether we're playing it or singing it or listening to it um but it's so universal in the way that it touches people and i'm immensely grateful for my time with Vimeo Alpha as a collegiate brother and all because of a simple conversation with one of the most goofy people that I've gotten to know over the years. And it's just crazy to me that you never know what little thing is going to lead to one of the biggest things in your life.
1: It, it, you know, I, I I I've got to go back to the words of our founding fathers on this too. The Symphonia was not can you sing or can you play? But brothers, let's get together. And that that was the original call to brotherhood. can we let's get together? I, I think that's something the world can use a whole lot more of just getting together and being without that pretense of having to have some goal other than socialization.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, there's really no easy way to pivot into or to segue um, into what I, I would love to talk about with you next. Um, so if you could just kind of help me establish a timeline uh, from the moments or maybe the, the events leading up to, I think one of the biggest events in your life um, and kind of the process that, um, or the the things that transpired through that, could you just kind of, Recap that for me.
1: I'm going to start with the. uh, I'm going to start about a month and a half before it happened. Because looking back on it, I can't tell the story without telling this part. Pretty much the whole school year of 2013, I had a pit in my stomach. My wife had a pit in her stomach. That Just something was off. So, you know, uh, the Lord prepares us for things in very interesting ways not to get too religious for some of your listeners but we knew that there was just something there was unease there was something unsettled in february of 2013 i had this odd compulsion to start cleaning my band room really thoroughly and totally organizing the music library and getting everything in order and I was actually at such a level with it that one of my students asked, are you setting this up for another teacher? Are you leaving us? How hard I've been working was actually some kids actually thought I was going to quit at spring break. Wow. And I'm just like, no, I'm it needs to be done. I feel compelled to do this. Um. And you know, I even know who those students are, and I can pick up a phone and call them, and, or shoot them a message on Messenger and talk with them about those conversations. Because it was just like when a mom is about to give birth, and she house. It was kind of that same compulsion. Um, only I'm not pregnant. That would be an absolutely different conversation to have. But <laughs> so. Uh, So, yeah, that was that, and that was weird. On to the timeline. St. Patrick's Day, Sunday, March 17th. Monday, March 11th, I get up and go to the bathroom, and I stub my toe really hard on a doorframe in the middle of the night. Um, Crack the end of the toenail, slap a Band-Aid on, and go on about my business wednesday i had a doctor's appointment i've had vascular issues in my legs for years i had a doctor screw some things up when i was 20 years old i mean 19 years old and um, ended up with blood clots and it blew out my legs and so i've been i've had some issues with skin loss due to some vascular issues and i had skin grafts but i'd gone to see my surgeon who did the latest latest round of them and since he was looking at my legs i had him look at the toe Pulls the Band-Aid off, and um, the tip of the toe is just just a cracked toenail. Nothing of merit, nothing of note. Put put a new Band-Aid on there. Go on about life. Thursday, uh, I have an appointment with my primary care doctor, and uh, the tip of the toe is just very slightly red. Nothing looks wrong about it. Just a couple drops of Neosporin, slap a new Band-Aid on it. That Friday, Friday the 15th of March, I'm starting to feel a little off. Now, I had two really young kids at the time, and they were both in parents' day out daycare, and they had both just gotten over the flu. So Rachel and I both think I've got the flu. I get up and I go to school as normal. And when you're a teacher, your day gets set in really specific rhythms, you're used to things happening on a very specific cadence, especially bathroom breaks, because they are few and far between. (laughs) And that's always while I was taking my seventh grade band to lunch. And I didn't have to go to the bathroom that day. Really kind of weird because I've been drinking like I normally drank a lot of water. After lunch, I would hop in my truck and go to the elementary school feeder for fifth grade band. And I was always get there early enough that I could go to the bathroom there too, because that was my last chance for a bathroom break before the end of the school day. Didn't have to go to the bathroom there either. So I thought the rest of the day would no problem, went out to eat with my parents-in-law that night and my wife and kids. You know, I went into my little home office cubby uh, for um, Friday night, gaming night, and I started to have really bad chills and I'm like okay it's the flu i'm screwed so i'm like guys i can't play tonight got to go to bed and i ended up with two blankets and a comforter on top of me and i was still 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 chattering chattering like nobody's business rachel told me i didn't wake up at all on saturday except to tell her that i needed something to drink which i don't remember Sunday morning, St. Patrick's day, March 17th, 2013. I wake up in the bathroom and I had no idea how I got there. And I had passed out and was picking myself up off the floor. It's about four in the morning. So I tell Rachel and she's really concerned at this point because I had, I didn't even get out of bed on Saturday to go to the bathroom. Wow. Uh which we which I'll get back to later. Her parents only lived a mile and a half from us. So she called them to come and watch the kids. And she took me to the local emergency room uh, in Jefferson city, Tennessee. Very thankful for the work that they did there. So shout out to Jefferson Memorial in Jefferson city, Tennessee. Uh, they got me in the emergency room. Um, they took off my shoes. They took off my socks and my right foot had turned purple. The infection had gotten in through that crack in the toenail and had gotten in the soft tissue around the muscle and gotten into the bone. Oh, wow. So it had stayed hidden. So all the times that I had been changing the bandage and the doctors had been changing the band aid, they didn't realize that the infection was festering underneath all that. By the time I got to Jefferson Memorial, uh, my blood pressure was dangerously low. And I was running a fever of 106 plus. Um, again, I don't remember much of this at all. I remember getting in the truck. That's it. The rest of this is what Rachel tells me um, for the next bit of it. Um, the doctor who had done my skin grafts was a surgeon at one of Knoxville's three hospitals. And being seeing as how we had an established relationship with him, Um, Jeff Memorial called him and said, Hey, uh, this guy is in shock. He's gone septic. He needs immediate primary emergency care. And they give him my stats and the surgeon says he's not going to make the ambulance ride, make him comfortable so he can say goodbye.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: And so he refused to accept me at his hospital. They weren't just going to let me die on the table. They had gotten an A-line in me. They were filling me with fluids. They were um, starting trying to get some, they they determined that my kidneys had failed, my liver had failed, my lungs were failing. Um, They were filling up a fluid and my heart rate was ramping up tremendously because I wasn't getting any oxygen in. Um, They finally got a hold of the University of Tennessee Medical Center. They had a open bed in their medical critical care unit. And they got me on an ambulance doing about 90 miles an hour down 11 East. (laughs) And um, by about 11 or 12 in the afternoon, I was at UT Medical being moved into the room, uh, room eight in the medical critical care unit. And um, again, I don't remember any of this. This is what Rachel told me. What I do remember Is waking up enough? Now, Rachel says that I was actually talking to the nurses and doctors through all of this. So, you know, 106 degree fever, my brain has either blocked or just not been able to remember any of this. But the last thing I do remember was holding Rachel's hand and saying the 23rd Psalm before they took me into surgery. Um, they put me on a paralytic, put me on a ventilator. Um, They took my foot Monday, the 17th. Um, I immediately went on full 24 seven dialysis, I had a dialysis machine in my room that I was hooked up to continuously. They put me on vasopressors to try to get um, the blood back to my chest cavity because I'd lost significant amounts of good blood because I was in full septic shock and I was in a coma for 10 days, almost 11 days. And there was a lot of touch and go. They called the chaplain and the palliative care nurse to make final arrangements with my wife. Um, It had gotten that bad. They called in the family to say goodbye to me, but somehow through the grace of God and some amazing, amazing doctors. um, They were able to wean me off the vasopressors. They were able to normalize my blood count. Um, And they took me off the ventilator. And, you know, I've got to thank um, Patrick Sheridan. Shout out to him and Sam Palafian. Rest in peace um, for the breathing gym. A little, a little bit of humor in the midst of all this while i was still not passed out um when they took me off the ventilator and just put me on the breathing bag the the little thing that goes up and down that you see in those hospital videos yeah i broke it (laughs) (laughs) i kicked into breathing gym stuff when i was able to breathe on my own and i first sucked the bag down inside of the unit oh my gosh And then blew it up to the top and it almost popped. So they just disconnected me from that and kept the breathing tube in and let me breathe on my own. (laughs) Wow. Uh, Yeah. Um, So yeah, thanks Sam and Pat for teaching me that. But the 27th, I thought I was having a dream. I could hear this really horrible music and I could see these people walking by a door. And for some reason, my brain was telling me that uh, I was in in the lobby of a musical restaurant in Pigeon Forge. Oh, my gosh. And I was waiting to pick up food to take it back home to Rachel. Now, I didn't know why I was in a bed in the middle of this lobby, but it was comfortable. And I kept trying to wave, but I couldn't. I just couldn't move. I really didn't want to They come to find out they had had to handcuff my hands together because I kept trying to pull out the, I kept trying to pull out the vent. Um, but they finally noticed that I was moving around and wiggling and grunting and they came in and extubated me and unhooked my hands and Rachel came in. And the first thing that I could say to them was I took Rachel's hand and said, "My God, you, you you exist. You you really you really exist." Because I I couldn't discern dream from reality until she took my hand. Wow. And I did not realize um, the doctors were incredible. There was a lot though that they were not telling me because well I was um, Rachel had my durable power of attorney. And I was being pumped so full of medicine that they told me, uh, by the way, I talked about the dream team of doctors. I ended up with the head professor of hematology at UT, the head professor of nephrology at UT, and the um, young gun surgeon, crack surgeon, vascular surgeon out of John Hopkins on my team that was taking care of me. That's who I drew in the lottery. So they're checking me. Like I said, my kidneys are shot. I'm on permanent dial permanent 24 seven dialysis until I wake up. And then they move me to just dialysis three times a week for the next six months. I go two more times before my kidneys are fully functional. Wow. There is no medical explanation for how my kidneys bounced back after sustaining that much damage. So they were actually able to pull my chest port a week after coming off the ventilator. Instead of six months later. That's insane. It. it, it, it you know. We, we. Keep thinking that miracles. Are these big huge things. That you know. Someone comes back from. The absolute brink of death. There on the table. But sometimes it's things like. Kidneys rebooting with no explanation. And. And. Like I said, I've got the professor of nephrology managing my kidney care, and she can't explain what happened. The professor of hematology, who's looking into why my blood is turning into cement, uh, who actually finds out why I have a clotting problem in the course of all this. Um, he's a very quiet, very soft-spoken Middle Eastern man. Dr. Waheed Hanna. The cancer center at UT is named after his wife. Oh, my god! <laughs> um, yeah. This guy knows his stuff. When I was finally released out of the hospital after three months, I stayed in the hospital three months between UT um, select um, skilled care and a month in physical rehab. When I finally got to Dr. Hannah's office after I was discharged from three months in the hospital. This stoic quiet man. Claps his hands, starts crying, and hugs me so tight because he never thought he would see me in his office.
0: Oh my gosh!
1: Uh, one of the doctors at uh, one of the doctors at inpatient inpatient physical therapy. Uh, his nickname for me was Lazarus. So you know that there was a lot that they had not told me because it could have panicked me. That I found out later about how dire things were but um yeah I made it through I mean
0: for you I, I think I counted two or three times there where they they were preparing your family for for your death yeah I mean how I guess because of, because that's so vastly different from what the majority of, of humans go through in their lifetime how how did that change you in a, at a core fundamental level?
1: That's a really, really hard question to answer. Because, you know, um, I've always been sustained by my faith. And I grew up with a mother who, gosh, I think she's had upwards of 40 arthritis related surgeries at this point in her life. Wow. Uh, so... Difficulty, especially medical difficulty, has always been something that's been a part of my life. But if there's one thing that I leave anyone with from this conversation, it's that the caregivers need as much care as the people they're taking care of. The worst parts of everything I just told you about, I slept through my wife had to live. The question is not, the question shouldn't be, excuse me, how did it change me? But how did it change her? Because she was the one who had doctors saying, do we leave them on life support another day? Do we um, try this? Should we, they asked her at one point if they should amputate my left leg, which sustained serious amounts of damage from the life-saving measures that they had taken with the vasopressors. So while I'm asleep in all this, while I'm the one who's laying there on the table with all these cords coming out of me, 21 holes, there were 21 holes in my body that things were coming out of at one point. She's the one having to watch me there. She's the one answering the doctor's questions. She's the one whose phone is ringing off the hook, not mine. I think when we talk about care and we talk about the experiences of people who have been through these things their experience is important yes but the people who take care of them bear scars we never talk about and i can't go back and take that burden off of her and i love my wife so much i mean even without that but to know that she went through that hell while i was asleep i I can't fathom I mean,
0: I, I come from a family of nurses and my mom was a nurse. Her mom was a nurse. My aunt's a nurse, my wife is a nurse. And I, I like to think that I have an appreciation for healthcare workers. And I had, I thought that I had some kind of insight, but I, I, I gotta be honest. Like I had never thought to put it like that and that. To just to hear you say, regardless of my experiences, they they had the worst of it at that time. I mean, first of all, that is an incredibly that's an incredible perspective to maintain through all of that. just to come out of of something so traumatic as losing a leg as having empathy for the ones who who cared for you and um, and thinking I mean like you're you're putting the focus on them through this entire conversation, which I mean, rightfully so, I, I, I think they, they obviously went through something so traumatic. And like you said, that, that left scars, um, that is definitely one of the most underappreciated, if not the most unappreciated professions in the country. Absolutely. From that point, from going through and starting the recovery process, um, I, I I, re- I remember seeing you, I don't even, I, I can't even piece the timeline together of how long it was after that. But I, I do remember seeing you um, after that and and walking around with a prosthetic. And um, it, how long was it before you were back in the classroom after all of
1: that happened? I was discharged from the hospital on June 17th. I was at INSER August 1st of that year. Oh my gosh. How I spent,
0: <laughs> I mean, obviously, I spent... I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but that, that short timeline, I think a lesser man would have taken it at least a year minimum to just focus on his own recovery and try and, and piece back together a life that somewhat resembled what, what they had before, but for you to just go not even two months and just go straight back into pouring out your heart into the students that you had, and not even skipping a beat. I mean, how how dedicated do you have to be to a profession and to your students to want to to to? I mean, you focus I've, just from everything that I'm hearing, and I, I know I'm stumbling over my words here, but it is so clear and evident that you care so much about your students and their well being and their their education. Um, that you you went above and
1: beyond to make sure you were back in the classroom for them? Well, not just for them. I mean, let's be honest for me too. Because that was making music had to be part of my healing. And I knew that on May 16th, uh, Theta Omicron's chapter day. Because several brothers surprised me and came to visit me in rehab. And this is knowing, but I did, I left this part out. At one point I ended up with MRSA in my chest tube. Oh my gosh. And I had a red door warning and anyone who came into my room had to wear full PPE Mm -hmm. and they showed up and they sang That helped me realize that my place for healing had to be around music and family. And that meant being home with my family as much as I could be. And that meant being at school with my family. Where I taught knows a lot about um, combat stress. (laughs) In my 14 years there, we've lost seven faculty, staff, and students to death wow the day that i was released from the hospital to come home my best friend in the building died of cancer oh my gosh and she knew it was coming we had been texting back and forth before um she lost consciousness and began the final journey home cindy mabry god rest her soul her first language is sarcasm. Her second language was um, English. Um, she was my Aunt Cindy. She was incredible. Not really my aunt, but that's who she was emotionally for me. And then, right after school started, um, a special ed aide slash basketball coach who coached basketball so that he could be a special ed aide because his, uh, out of love for his daughter who was a special needs student wow, he had a heart, he had a sudden heart attack and died. And so that cemented, I knew I had to be there because we had to have some way of working through the healing process. And so for all of us, for all of my students, for me, for my family, that sense of normalcy, that working through it that working through things by getting back to the natural rhythm and by participating in something so much bigger than us is what helped us survive. Being back at church and singing from the pew and worshiping with my church family, getting to sing with my fraternity brothers on March, on May 16th for chapter day getting back in front of my band and just being a part of making music with them, you know, (laughs) that's what the jump, those were the jumper cables it took to really get the healing going, you know, recovery, there is no button that puts a day on the calendar that says, congratulations, you've recovered. Recovery is an ongoing process and your body may recover faster than your mind. Your mind may recover faster than your soul it's an ongoing thing. And I had to be back with my kids in order to do it. That was the only way that I could survive.
0: I think for anyone to look at your life and to not feel like things happen for a reason would just be insanity. And it, every step seems to have been a building block to get to the next place. And for your drive in education to be cemented so young and to build such a, an intimate relationship with your students and their families and the community, and then to be a part of um, this national organization to further cement that sense of community, um, and then to go through something so horrific, but to to know and to have the tools um, to at least start the healing process and start processing what you had gone through. Um, I, I couldn't imagine what it would have been like without those same tools um, if music hadn't been such an integral part of your life. But you have always, before even before you lost a leg, you have always been such an inspiration to me in how you've handled yourself and um, just the way you speak and treat others. And then to go through something like that and to come out even stronger, I feel like, and it, it, I'm, sh- I know that it's not every day that that you're strong and that it's easy or it's it's bearable, but um, to still keep that drive up and even even if there are stumbling blocks, to still keep going and face the next day, I, I can't begin to tell you what your your experience and what your I don't want to say legacy, but what you've ta- what you've taught to other people has meant so much to me and i know to the other people more directly in your life right now i just wanted to say thank you for for being you and i know you're you, i know you're not going to take a compliment very easily but nonetheless i i just wanted to just pause and take a second to say thank you for what you do and to thank your family for the work that they put in and how they've Stood by you and and pressed on with you every step of the way. I it's it's just so good to see such a strong support system and to see an example of of what it is like to go through all of this and come out better for it on the other side. Um, and
1: now to be soon soon to be or currently, uh, Doctor Ashley Glenn, I successfully defended my dissertation on June seventh. And uh have officially graduated. I am officially Dr. Glenn PhD.
0: And Ooh. to start to start that process after all of this and to go through it, your your life puts me at a loss for words. And I know being the host of a podcast and interviewing you should not let I should not be at a loss for words right now because I'm the one that's supposed to kind of guide the conversation. But I and I know, like I've heard a lot of this before, but then to just sit down and, and hear you spell it all out step by step, I I can't even fathom. And I'm so I'm so thankful that there are people like you out there that, regardless of whether you're aware of it or not, are an example to the people around you. I mean, it. I don't even really know how to send this off right now, to be honest, just because I can't follow up anything that you've said here. If you could tell someone like if if you could mentor someone who's been, who's starting the process of what you had gone through, um, who's at the beginning of their recovery, what kinds of things would you say to them?
1: Oh gosh. You know, I I actually have already been through this (laughs) a few weeks ago. Um, I have friends in the, in the medical profession who put amputees in chart, in touch with new amputees or soon to be amputees to help them get through the process. And it's I hate to sound cheesy. I hate empty platitudes, but it's a comma, not a period. Um, there are people out there with, uh no legs running marathons. Um, there are people out there who are climbing bikes peak with a prosthetic. Um, there, I, I, you know, I, I've got, let me defer to my cousin here. Um, i'm doug goddard jr and the access life ministry uh let me give them a quick plug here my wife's cousin doug um doug jr was a high school all sports all-star in jefferson county Uh, he was mr football mr baseball it's he he had the life and um he and his parents were divorced he went up To his mom's in Boston or Baltimore somewhere up on the East Coast starts with a B between I think his junior and senior year of high school and went diving off a pier at low tide and uh, ended up a quadriplegic and yeah those sports scholarships disappear really quickly whenever (laughs) you can't even pick anything up anymore long story short he has a jurist doctor from Vanderbilt he used to help design um upper deck baseball cards and he gave up all of that to run um, his access life ministry with his wonderful wife, Leanne his wonderful wife Leanne and what they do is they travel the country giving people who are who have disabilities experiences that they otherwise wouldn't get to have. They uh, work with local churches and community groups. And the one that they do in um, Upper East Tennessee every year around Jefferson City, just east of Knoxville, um, they'll draw in 500 people and let people who are disabled go boating, go fishing, do archery, bowl. They have these things set up to give them real life experiences that they otherwise wouldn't get to have. And this is a person who is a quadriplegic and his wife who are doing these things for these other people. Limits are artificial. Most limits are artificial. You're you're limited by what you want to tell yourself you can do. Now... uh, (laughs) there are things that my disability may keep me from being able to do. Yeah. I can never fly a plane unless they adapt the foot pedals for me. But they also told me I'd never go back and teach my band again. Then they told me, why do you want to get a doctorate? Just go on disability. Then they said, you know, this is way too stressful for your body. You ought to just consider taking, um, taking the credits and going back and teaching in public school. Or then it was, You shouldn't continue in conducting. You should go to music ed. No one's going to hire a disabled conductor. And so I switched from a DMA to music ed. And what was my first job? An assistant marching band director and director of a university band plus music ed. You know, when you have the people surrounding you who properly enable you, who motivate you, who encourage you, who tell you what your real limits are to keep you safe, not to limit you. You can do an awful lot of stuff. And, you know, I got to flip this back on you because you've been a major encourager in my life. You have always been someone who everyone I've seen you around, you always have something kind and genuine to say to And you enable the people around you and give them the strength to do good things. So you're one of the reasons why I've been able to do this. Because as long as I've known you, you have been a positive influence for me. And I'm lucky that I can be where I'm at because I'm surrounded by people like you. Because I had that support network. And thank you for that.
0: That is that's genuinely one of the nicest things anyone's ever said to me. I, I think I'll take that and and on the compliment on me. After this whole conversation, um, I, I again, Ashley, I just I want to thank you, for taking the time to do this, um, for being being there in people's lives and to never never give up the drive and the the spark that you have to invest in people because we need people in the world like you out there and and encouraging and helping and teaching and it gives me so much hope to know that there are educators out there like you who would do anything for their students and their community and and it it gives me so much joy to be a very small part in just sharing your story. And I hope that more people um, hear this and are encouraged and go out and just do the thing that they've wanted to do despite whatever people have said to them, whether whether or not they're physically disabled. Um, But I I, I can't tell you what it means that there are people in the world like you. And so thank you for that. I'm, I have nothing but the brightest hopes for your, the rest of your career and your future. Um, and it's going to be so great seeing what else life has in store for you.
1: Well, thank you so much and likewise. And thank you for what you're doing, sharing people's stories. It is nothing to be
0: commended to hold a microphone to someone when they are the ones that have gone through the things that are worth sharing. Um, And I'm always going to find a way to flip compliments back onto someone else. So that's just who I am. Um, But thank you, Ashley. We're going to have to make sure we talk uh, more frequently than every once a year or every couple months, like we've been doing. Um, Absolutely. But uh, again, thank you. And I hope you have a great rest of your night. And I am really looking forward to this getting out there and for people to hear, because I, I think people need to hear this and need to hear more about your story. And I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that it's going to be out there. And we have some kind of recorded, uh, recorded documentation of all of this.
1: At least I do now. Thank you so much. And yeah, we, we've got to talk more often. Next time I'm down in the Chattanooga area. Are you, you're still in that? Yeah. 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 yeah, I'm still shakes. Shakes are on me. Oh yeah. We'll make that happen.
0: Absolutely. All right, Ashley. Well, thank you so much. And I hope you have a great rest of your night.
1: Thanks. You too, my friend. All right. Bye.